Welcome to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. I'm your host, CEO Dan Mariash. Stay tuned for my discussion with B'nai B'rith Director of Legislative Affairs and Deputy Director for Human Rights and Public Policy, Eric Fussfield, about the impact of the Abraham Accords two years after the agreement was signed. Just one brief reminder before we delve into our conversation. Check out our series, Conversations with B'nai B'rith, and all of our interviews on Facebook and YouTube. You'll find discussions with diplomats, historians, Holocaust survivors, Middle East experts, even the first Jewish American male astronaut in space. And get our latest content by subscribing to the B'nai B'rith YouTube channel and liking us on Facebook at B'nai B'rith International. Two years have passed since the United States, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Israel signed the historic Abraham Accords. On September 15, 2020, the UAE and Bahrain formally recognized the state of Israel and normalized relations with the Jewish state, ultimately charting a new course in the history of Arab-Israeli relations. This achievement set the stage for Morocco and Sudan to follow suit and join the accords later in 2020 thus raising the number of Arab states with formal diplomatic ties to Israel from two to six. Normalizing relations with other nations means more than just diplomatic cooperation. And in the case of the Abraham Accords, it means a whole lot more. Some of the most important outcomes of the Accords so far are the change in people-to-people relationships, the promotion of closer Muslim-Jewish relations, and the growing number of bilateral initiatives within the private sector and civil society, signaling rising approval of leaders' decisions. The magnitude and importance of the Abraham Accords cannot be overstated, and the general sense is that this is just the beginning. With me to discuss the second anniversary of the signing of the Accords and the achievements of the last two years is my colleague, the Neighborhood Director of Legislative Affairs and Deputy Director for Human Rights and Public Policy, Eric Fussfield. Eric and I will explore how the Accords have impacted Israel and the entire Middle East region, prospects for continued regional peace and security, the growing threat from Iran, and much more. Eric Fussfield has been B'nai B'rith's Director of Legislative Affairs since 2003, and Deputy Director of the B'nai B'rith International Center for Human Rights and Public Policy since 2007. He holds a BA from Columbia University, a Master of Studies from Oxford University, and a JDMA from American University in Law and International Affairs. And he was recently ordained as a rabbi. Eric, glad to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, let's just start. I'll. Um, begin with some recollections and reminiscences. Uh, In September of 1993, I was present on the South Lawn of the White House for the signing of the Oslo Accords with the Palestinians. And there was a feeling that day, a great sense of relief, uh, that there would be some progress, finally a breakthrough in relations between Israel and the Palestinians. And yet, even with Yitzhak Rabin standing next to President Clinton, uh, also on that stage was Yasser Arafat, the leader of the PLO, an organization committed to Israel's destruction and the leading terrorist organization uh, uh, of its time. And so there was kind of this 
this nagging feeling, even though there was elation on the one. There were also uh, some second thoughts and doubts about whether or not the Oslo Accords would lead to the kind of relationship between Israel and the Palestinians uh, that, that many of us had hoped for. Fast forward to September 15th, 2020, same South Lawn of the White House, same great day weather-wise for the signing of the Abraham Accords. And there was a feeling because we had already seen in the run-up to the signing of the Abraham Accords, there already had been um, a number of steps that had been taken that, that we were reading about uh, between Israel and Bahrain, Israel and the United Arab Emirates that led us to believe we didn't think it would happen so soon to the norm, real normalization of, of relations. And there was a total, totally different feeling uh, that day. No nagging doubts, the same kind that we had back in 1993 uh, on, on the White House lawn. Uh, and I think with these two years, uh, with, with some issues here and there, there really have been very, very few disappointments. And in fact, much to be encouraged about. So that's how I kind of look at, at the two years today and a little bit in retrospect, looking back at 1993. What's your take on it? Well, Dan, you used the word yourself a moment ago, relief. Uh, what, what's, what's different about the Abraham Accords is they have freed up the cause of regional Middle East peace from the grip of Palestinian intransigence. That if you think about it, the Palestinians created a bottleneck in which peace and progress were stifled. And it's no longer the case that every forward-leaning initiative in the region be subject to a reflexive veto by the Palestinians who insist on subjugating regional peace, stability, and economic prosperity to the parochial ambitions of the Palestinian leadership. Well, I think that um, we have to take a look at, at why this happened. It, it had been in the works for a long time. Clearly, the security threat posed by Iran, not only to Israel, but to the, but to the region, and particularly to the Gulf states, and, and in particular to the Emirates, to Bahrain, and to Saudi Arabia as well, that the, this kind of coming together of like-minded nations because of the threats posed by Iran clearly uh, had a big impact uh, on this as Iran kind of barrels toward not only a nuclear weapon, but also uh, as it pushes its own hegemonistic agenda in the region by backing various proxy armies, arming Hezbollah, Hamas, Iraqi proxies, uh, Yemeni proxies. Uh, so there was the security dimension which, which brought folks together. Now, that I, I don't think that the countries who signed here necessarily have abandoned the Palestinians but they were not interested in waiting for the Palestinians. I mean, for decades, uh, it, it all depended on the Palestinians. And in fact, many in the West bought into this idea that if you didn't have an, an agreement with the Palestinians, you couldn't have an agreement with, all, with the rest of the Arab world. That was impossible. There were some who, who were saying it could happen, particularly on the Israeli side, but not, not really many, uh, if any, uh, on the Arab side. And so I think that's what you have here. Uh, where you have a security dimension, uh, an economic dimension, trade, I mean, taking a look at 
some of the agreements that have been signed just in the last couple of years that have produced a great amount of trade, particularly between Israel and the United uh, Arab Emirates. And also a very, another important issue here, another important dimension, which is that the, the uh, Emirates and the Bahrainis, uh, and by extension, the Moroccans who later came in, the Sudanese, were looking for a better and closer relationship with Washington. And this gave impetus to the U.S., being a signatory to this, uh, being an impetus to this uh, kind of multilateral relationship with the United States, so important to every country, of course, including Israel, uh, but the other countries as well. Yeah, you know, look at it this way. Bahrain, the UAE, Morocco, and Sudan, they got tired of waiting for the Palestinians to budge. These countries could sow $70 billion in new trade, trade and investment over the next decade, instead of continuing to invest in Palestinian waste and corruption. Peace, prosperity, stability, containing the Iranian threat, as you said, and other dangers. It's normal for countries to want these things. And this is the hope that the Abraham Accords provide. It got to a point where both Arab states and Israel became prepared to move forward with or without the Palestinians. Fortunately, they did. You know, it's interesting. Um, there actually had been kind of a dress rehearsal uh, for this. And I think a lot of people forget this. Back in the 90s, uh, in the, the, the early 90s, there had been the Madrid conference, which kind of got the, the peace process you know, underway. But then, you know, you had the, the Jordanian-Israeli peace treaty in 1994, extremely important. At that time, there had been a lot of interest. In fact, in Israel, in Tel Aviv, uh, Bahrain, uh, Qatar, Tunisia, Oman, and Morocco had all open offices. They called them trade offices, trade representation. But that was kind of the nascent beginning of a diplomatic uh, relationship. Then, when the, the two intifadas came into, into play in the late 90s, early 2000s, those countries pulled back, and in their place, uh, the Saudis had proposed first it's called the FOD plan, then became the Saudi plan, which was the, the formula being that if Israel and the Palestinians uh, could come to an agreement, that Israel would then be able to establish relations with the rest of, of the Arab world. A, a pretty ambitious promise, uh, wherein there were many doubters, uh, but it never happened anyway. So we went into kind of a, a cold freeze until we saw some activity again just before uh, the signing of the, uh, the Abraham Accords. Question is, this is now in place, good economic relations are, are, are underway, security agreements are being signed, Israel's defense minister, Benny Gantz, has been to Bahrain, a security official from those, the other two countries, the Arab countries have visited Israel, and those, those relationships are, are really now underway. The question is, where will this lead and how far can this go, given the fact um, that we still have serious difficulties, chaos in the region, Iranian activity, it's, it's hegemonistic activity, fomenting all of the issues right now as we speak. There you know, have been negotiations to resume uh, the JCPOA agreement with the Iranians on the nuclear issue, but the Iranians don't seem to care. They continue to stick fingers in everybody's eye. I mean, just most recently, 
um, Iranian proxy attacks on U.S. troops in Syria. So how far and how quickly you know, this can go, I think, is a, is a question that uh, there's no uh, absolute answer to it. Uh, what's your take? Well, if you look at how far and how quickly we've already come in two years, it, it's a good portent for, for the future. If you break it down, in the past year, we've seen a landmark uh, d- defense memorandum of understanding between Israel and Morocco, a security agreement between Israel and Bahrain, a free trade agreement between Israel and the UAE that could expand to $10 billion in annual trade over the next five years. With these developments and their popular support, which is very important, comes a combination of a psychological shift and economic improvement that will make peace more durable. If we can continue to expand the peace dividend, We'll see better relations between the Jewish state and Arab and Muslim countries generally. And perhaps more importantly, there's an opportunity to engage youth in a way that steers them away from the path of extremism and toward a future of jobs and opportunity. Now, how much we can expand this circle of opportunity remains to be seen. There are other countries on the horizon um, whom we'd like to include. Um, in this, uh, in the peace process, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll see how many can be brought in in the upcoming years. Yeah, you mentioned the psychological changes. It, it's so important. We're talking about trade. No question, free trade agreement with the UAE already in two years has resulted in a two and a half billion dollar uh, trade between the two countries. But I think as as important are these shifts in person-to-person programs, academic programs, travel, tourism. But not only that, I mean, in in Morocco and in in Bahrain and other places, now the discussion about the Holocaust, a real discussion about how the the Holocaust impacted the Jewish people. There are uh, Muslim clerics in in these countries. Uh, We have met with them recently, just a few months ago. We uh, took a group to, to the Gulf, met with a number of important Muslim clerics. Um, those kind of issues that had been either off limits, not discussed, the question of, of the relation between the two religions, Islam and Judaism, those kinds of questions are now beginning to be discussed on a person-to-person basis. So when we talk about peace, uh, for, for peace to, to really uh, come about, it requires education. It requires goodwill. It requires trust, being open, and um, the the early signs are. It's not so. In other words, these relationships of the last couple of years. If it were just trade, and it were opening embassies, it, it would be it would be great, as we say, you know, in our community, Dayenu. But we've seen some moves to to begin to open up about ourselves. If you that provides some of the, the foundation and the strengthening and the, the, the glue, if you will, to make these relationships hopefully long-lasting and, and strong. Yeah, and, and the, the other issue to mention here uh, is anti-Semitism there. We've seen an incipient willingness to discuss uh, um, not just the Holocaust, but uh, but anti-Semitism, 
um, much of which today is manifested um, in the form of anti-Israel hatred. And if you could break down these um, tendencies to demonize um, uh, the, the Jewish state, um, it, it, it's it's a real breakthrough. And so I, I think the, the, the willingness for the two sides to see each other um, in human terms and uh, to cut through hatreds and increase mutual understanding, it's a real breakthrough. And this goes to the psychological shift that we were talking about earlier. There, It's a step toward normalization of Israel's place in the region and Israel's ties with its Arab and Muslim neighbors. Yeah, and look, in, in many respects, of course, this is a great breakthrough. In many respects, this is also a laboratory because these kinds of issues have been on the shelf for all this time. There haven't been diplomatic relations. Uh, there was a state of war. Uh, the Arab League for years and years until the Abraham Accords could always be counted upon or, or Arab delegates at the UN General Assembly and the Security Council could always be counted upon, and even right now, to a certain extent, in the Human Rights Council, to um, uh, engage in, in this campaign against Israel. And so all of these very important factors, again, I'll say person to person, uh, were just not non-existent, and they weren't available to everyone. You know, one of the things that we, we need to do, I think we need to keep the momentum of this process going. Now, you know, the situation has changed a little bit over the last couple of years, but not that much. There are still countries out there like Saudi Arabia, also Indonesia. We moved to another part of the world, which has um, one of the world's largest Islamic populations, Oman, which is right there in the neighborhood. There, there are other potential candidates to join this process. And I think it's important to keep this, this momentum going. Now, at the same time, on the Palestinian side, I think, you know, the Palestinians have, for all of these decades, uh, simply uh, decided that this is going to be a zero-sum game. It's either going to be their way or the highway. We've had several major international attempts, whether it was at uh, Camp David or Annapolis, the Kerry Initiative of some years ago, and various attempts to, to move the Israeli-Palestinian issue forward, and the Palestinians continue, and particularly at the UN, but not only at the UN, continue to act as if this were 40 years ago. And um, their demands, for example, right of return, not recognizing Israel as a Jewish state, those solidly entrenched positions send a message that they, and I say they, Palestinian Authority in this particular case, because Hamas seeks Israel's destruction in any case. They are, the, the train is, as we say, and it's a cliche that's been used many times in discussion about the Abraham Accords, the train has left the station. We've already seen the benefits of, of embarking on, on a new era of understanding, and in this case, normalization of relations. And the Palestinians have had a chance over the last couple of years to see how this process works. And so far, we haven't seen any change, any recognition that this is a pathway for them, which again, sends another message that perhaps they're not really interested. Well, one of the great benefits of the Abraham Accords it, is that it shows there is a price to be paid for intransigence. 
um, indeed, as you say, that the, the train is is leaving or has left this station. And if the Palestinians aren't willing to hop on board, they'll get left behind um, if they don't show a real willingness to engage in direct negotiations with the Israelis and to move forward in a constructive way on a diplomatic level and economic level and, and so forth, um, it will be to their detriment. Yeah, and I think that um, the lessons of the Abraham Accords uh, also talk about the Palestinian issue, but I think they, they resonate even beyond the region. You know, we're, we're in a time of, of international crisis, constant international crisis, uh, wherever one looks, uh, either on, on a battlefield, case of Ukraine, uh, or in other places around the world. Look at Afghanistan, the terrorist organizations, list of terrorist organizations that continue to operate in the Middle East, Southwest Asia. And here you, you have uh, something which is kind of the exception to the rule, but can serve as an object lesson for peacemaking. You know, we've become very cynical and skeptical uh, about peace in a, in a world uh, where there is such divisiveness. But I think, you know, it may be too early to talk about a, a, a legacy of the Abraham Accords, because we're just really at the, not long after the birth of this agreement. But there are some lessons here that could be applied perhaps elsewhere uh, in the world in terms of, of reconciliation. I don't mean to look at anything through rose-colored glasses, but here's a, when you have a situation where for 70 years, uh, some countries uh, in the Middle East had no relations with the state of Israel, would not sit at the same table with the Israelis, uh, much less have a direct air route, economic ties, academic exchanges, that there's um, there's some lesson in, in this uh, for, for others in other parts of the world. Well, I, I, these kinds of developments, this kind of, you know, landmark forward progress usually involves a paradigm shift of some kind. There are external forces, but also a convergence of shared interests. And in this case, for Arab and Muslim countries, the obvious need to contain Iran are an incentive to promote normalization and push back against extremism. And so I, I, I think, if anything, this might be an example of seizing the moment that conditions both within a region and external to that region provide and uh, recognizing the opportunities um, that are present, uh, and then and then uh, and and seizing those opportunities. It, it it's it's a formula that could be applied elsewhere as well. Now, you know, one thing we haven't talked about. Uh, we've talked about the fact that back in the '90s there were these relations uh, that Israel had with a number of Arab states, including countries that at one time had uh, significant uh, Jewish populations. I, I'm thinking of Morocco and, and Tunisia. Of course, the, the relationship with Morocco has always had this solid element of the very large uh, Moroccan uh, Jewish component of Israel's population. And that, that connection, even without the diplomatic relations, uh, that connection has always served as a base point from which ultimately uh, much better relations uh, have been established. But uh, even in a country like Bahrain, which has a, a very small Jewish population, there is a very long history 
um, of a Jewish community in Bahrain. So it's um, for some, this is, this is kind of either discovering roots or going back to roots, or perhaps utilization of, of roots as another important uh, force multiplier, if you will, uh, in the relations uh, between Israel and, and these countries. You know, we are historically, we uh, Jews are a Middle Eastern people. And the fact that a couple of these countries have this history, uh, I think, uh, has really kind of served to reinforce the relationships that grew into the Abraham Accords. Well, let's hope the roots connection, the Jewish uh, heritage of these countries will play a positive role. It really is incumbent upon these countries to embrace their Jewish heritage and recognize that Jews have really been a part of the history of that region for millennia. And uh, unfortunately, there has been historically since the mid-1900s when Jews were forced to flee that region in large numbers, um, there's, there's been a certain um, disdain, in some, case, uh, some cases outright contempt showed by regimes, autocratic regimes in these countries, um, toward Jews and other minorities. Now, we've talked about this opening up and shifting of attitudes and recognition of anti-Semitism as a problem, recognition that the Holocaust occurred, and, and at the same time, or shortly after the Holocaust, this flight or exodus of, of Jews from the Middle East and North Africa took place. If there's greater recognition of that and understanding of that, this could lead to uh, the kind of embrace of uh, the Jewish heritage of the reason, region as a, a point of pride for these countries, the way that we have seen it uh, unfold in Central and Eastern Europe, Poland, Romania, other countries in the region where Jews have also been there for centuries. And, and it's now becoming more commonly accepted that Jews are really part of the, the history of those countries and, and um, part of the, uh, the cultural landscape there. So more um, growth in that direction would be welcome. And of course, the fact that there's such a, um, a big Middle Eastern diaspora in Israel uh, it really opens up opportunities for tourism and increased commerce and and more uh, personal connections established. I'm glad you raised the issue of um, Jews from Arab countries, and I know that B'nai B'rith and you, in particular, uh, have been extremely active uh, on this issue. We're talking about uh, over 800,000 Jews who fled, uh, forced to flee uh, the Arab world somewhere between 1948, 19, mid-1950s, and um, the, the history of Jews in the Middle East uh, up until that, that period was, uh, was one of uh, great contributions, not only to our own Jewish history and Jewish heritage, but also to the countries themselves. And, you know, that, that brings back again the, the issue, the Palestinian issue comes back again in this context, that you know, the, the, it isn't only the, the, just the rejection of, of Israel, which, which we know about, and in the case of Hamas, it's, it's seeking to, uh, to destroy the state of Israel, but uh, it's, uh, it's also a question of denying that Jewish connection to, to the land, to the Middle East, the inability and refusal 
how the Palestinians recognize Israel as a Jewish state. But not only that, I mean, this, the continued very anachronistic argumentation Palestinians use by saying that, the, well, you know, the Jews just came in after the Holocaust, and uh, that's, that's the, the, the entirety of the story. And, and the, to deny the Jewish place in the region, in the land, has been one of the main reasons that we've not been able to move towards some kind of, of agreement there between Israel and the Palestinians. So I'm glad you raised it, and I'm glad that B'nai B'rith has played an important role in that process. Uh, so I think uh, at this point, um, the, the remaining question uh, really is, uh, what are the next steps uh, to expand the accords? I and mean, we've talked about Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, Oman. My sense is that the momentum will continue, but uh, we need to have the United States deeply and actively engaged in this process because of, of the importance, and I would say the indispensability at this particular point, of a, a relationship in the region amongst uh, our friends and allies, and including, of course, most importantly, the state of Israel. Um, and that's going to require um, some extra effort from here. I also feel at the same time, though, that the countries themselves in question, the next ones waiting to join, understand now the value of these relationships with Israel. Uh, and um, that, you know, with a with a proper encouragement, not only from our community, but from so many others uh, to make this happen. Hopefully we can keep this on track and add additional signatories to this process, important process, vital process of normalization. Well, you, you mentioned a few potential uh, signatories and uh, they each present uh, interesting um, uh, case studies. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, you've got domestic pressures that make full normalization unlikely, at least initially, but even incremental diplomatic steps could mean a great deal for the easing of tension and the move away from extremism. Indonesia is a more likely candidate for peace with Israel because its opposition to Israel is becoming anachronistic now that Israel has signed treaties with um, six Arab countries and because Indonesia's self-image as a bridge between Islam and the rest of mankind is harder to realize if it's a war with the Jewish state. Oman is a complicated case because Israel has sustained quiet, low-level relations with the Omanis for the past 30 years, but Omani sees itself as a neutral figure in regional conflicts, sort of like a Switzerland of the Arab world, which could prevent it from elevating its ties with Israel. It's worth noting that this is not taking place in a vacuum because we have the war in Ukraine and uh, the impact of um, Russia's invasion there um, is, it could play a role because the U.S. administration has already testified before Congress to the effect that um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine may open a strategic opportunity to dilute Russia's security partnerships with some nations. Um, the, the U.S. wants to provide um, affordable or subsidized U.S. solutions to uh, off-ramp defense partners from, from Russia, like Saudi Arabia, like Oman, and Algeria and Qatar, um, who, who are, you know, um, they, these are big uh, Russian arms purchasers, and they've seen 
um, uh, the Russian arms uh, underperform in Ukraine against U.S. provided arms. So this uh, could give them second thoughts about how to structure their their defense partnership. So, so there are a lot of things going on, and there's an opportunity for the U.S. to step in to, um, to further the process. Well, let's hope that uh, when we have um, uh, the same program a year from today, uh, we'll see some, uh, some new members of, of this uh, very important group, which uh, would further consolidate, hopefully, stability in, uh, in the Middle East and, and beyond. Uh, Eric, uh, I'm glad we had the opportunity to discuss the Abraham Accords and how it's changed and will continue to impact the Middle East landscape. Always great having you on. Uh, we appreciate your being with us today. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Well, if you're looking for more of our programming, visit our website, benebra.org, to listen to all of our conversations, podcasts, and live interviews. A big thanks to Benebra Director of Legislative Affairs and Deputy Director for Human Rights and Public Policy, Eric Fussfield, for joining me, and thank you for listening in. Now, if you like what you hear and you're in a podcast app already, tap the subscribe button to follow us and also listen to the show via the Benebrith website. For my guest, Eric Fussfield, and for Benebrith, I'm your host, Dan Mariashin. Talk to you again soon.